Friends, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Pick up where we left off. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 17 through 30. First Samuel chapter 18, verses 17 through 30. The last time we were in this book, I'll remind you that Saul was driven mad by jealousy. His desire was for all of the praise that David was getting. He thought, I'm the man, I'm the king, I'm worth all of this attention. And you'll also recall that so mad was he driven by it that we're told that a harmful spirit from God assaulted him. And that he was so angry and so driven to rage that he took a spear and he threw it at David not once but twice in an attempt to kill him, pin him to the wall. And it's a significant thing. What was David doing but playing music to calm his soul and to be a help to him as he had previously done? But we have a wild, crazy, jealous, and insane Saul in the face of an innocent, godly, humble David who God is raising up as a man after his own heart for the sake of the kingship of Israel. Let us read God's word. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Meroth. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at that time when Merav, the daughter of Saul, should have been given to David... She was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, for a wife. Now when Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him, Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in, a private and, in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies." Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. And before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. 
And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to the battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. The word of the Lord. May the reader understand. Preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible in a stubborn commitment does not allow us to just skip around awkward verses of Scripture or even ones that are hard to explain or hard to apply. And so tonight, in a firm commitment of the sovereignty of God and the inspiration of the substance and the order of His Holy Word, we find ourselves with a historical artifact that reveals to us so much of the character of our God. It really does. There are wonderful lessons to be learned about who God is, specifically who God is for his people. And so as we come this evening, we encounter the story of the bride price plot of Saul. Saul who desired to have David, his mightiest man, the champion of his people, killed He failed to do it by his own hand, and now he is plotting to have him killed by the hands of his enemies or to discredit him altogether as a man not worthy of the adoration of Israel. And why is Saul doing something like this? This would seem to be a leader destroying the best that he has, and that's exactly what it is, or at least his attempt to do it. Well, it's because Saul is a jealous, pitiful king who spiritually has turned away from God and just wants to destroy anybody that the love of God resides upon. And so we have three things I think we can learn from the passage this evening in verses 17 through 21. The first is that God's plans are greater than man's plots. God's plans are greater than than man's plots. Verses 22 through 24, we learn that godly humility magnifies God's glory. Godly humility magnifies God's glory. And then in verses 25 through 30, we learn that godly trust is greater than human suspicion. Godly trust is greater than human suspicion. And so God's plans are greater than man's plots. Verses 17 through 21. And here in verse 17, I remind you that we come again to a thin-skinned and jealous Saul. He's a weakened king who sought his own designs, his own wisdom, his own desires in the things that he has done. And he's not been a man obedient to the Lord Not only that, but he's a man driven crazy by rage. It 
really directs everything he does. It's almost as if logic has just gone straight out the window. A heart for God is not even in the rear view mirror. And he just is trying to do whatever seems right in the moment of his anger. And in verse 17, we come and we encounter the beginning of another plot. And I want to tell you that this passage of Scripture is a little bit more complex. It's got more angles, more different approaches than you may expect. And so let me attempt to explain this at least to you in in part. We read in verse 17 that Saul offers his daughter Merav. You may pronounce her name Merab, but I believe it's Merav in the original. It's his oldest daughter, the one that uh, doesn't stand to really inherit anything, but she is nonetheless the chiefest and the first of the princesses of Israel. Her father is not a king, he is the king of the land. And she's significant. This is the first of his little girls that he's going to give away in his kingdom and just like a royal wedding today it garners lots and lots of attention but Saul isn't innocent nor is he upright in the way in which he intends to have this marriage unfold or maybe this proposal to marriage to unfold and have you thought about this that's what we're talking about marriage proposals He's not proposing to Merov. Merov's not proposing to him. Her daddy is proposing to him for her. It's a whole different mindset about how that relationship functions. But the scripture doesn't let us escape the heart of Saul. And again and again, we read that whenever Saul is engaged in getting his daughter engaged... That he has an underhanded thought. Verse 17. Let not my hand be against him. Against David. But let the Philistines. Or the hand of the Philistines be. Against him. Because what's the bride price? What's this for the oldest daughter? Well it's pretty simple. David. I don't expect you to pay me gold. Or goats or bulls. David I don't expect you to pay me. And wine or cheese or bread or grain only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles he's sending him into battle you want my daughter go kill my enemies it's as simple as that and again I just want to remind you the scriptures want to be absolutely profound and crystal clear about the heart of Saul He doesn't want the best for his daughter. He doesn't want the best for his kingdom. He wants to dispose of an enemy that he feels is untouchable by his own hand. He's already tried to kill him, not just once, but twice, flinging spears at his head or however. He knows that God is on him. He's afraid of David. Let somebody else. And you can begin to think on the logic of this. This is David who killed the greatest of the Philistines. The giant, Goliath. I'm going to send him back to the Philistines and maybe they'll finish the job this time. It's a silly proposition. God was with him and guided his hand the first time and took a young lad against a great man of war. And David succeeded over him. But that's the plot and the sinful depth that the heart 
of Saul is willing to go to. But in verse 18, you actually see David's humble response. We're going to get to that a little bit more in the next point in the sermon because it's quite important. It's something I really want to point out and drive home to you. But David is, well, just kind of saying, who am I? I mean, my family's nothing. My father's clan is unknown. How should I be your son-in-law? And you can almost get a sense of it here in a feel that David kind of knows what's going on. I mean, he had to dodge the spear. And now he thinks, well, Saul is conspiring for 50 spears or 100 spears to be thrown at him rather than just one twice thrown at the wall. David is very intelligent. But nonetheless, as we continue on in this first section, you get to verse 19. And you read about the depth of this crooked heart. Because on one sense, you've got Saul planning and plotting that David could be killed by the hands of his enemies. Oh, if that works out. But in verse 19, a better offer came. And we don't know a whole lot about Adriel, the Maholathite. But it makes good sense that Saul had good reasons. It fits with his character. He's looking to advance himself and the giving away of this daughter to him instead of David. After all, David can do nothing but die, really, for Saul. And whenever Saul retracts the offer and gives her to another, David is brought into public shame. I mean, the marriage to a royal princess of the house of Israel... Snatched away from him. Everybody knows this. And so for Saul, it's kind of a win-win. My enemies kill David or I smear his name in public. The great man, not great. He's done something and people's minds get to going and they get to wondering. And, and you've got the great man, the commander of the armies of Israel in the middle of intrigue. And so, as you see, there's a bit more complexity to this. Saul has an ark. He really can't lose in his own mind. Either somebody else takes him out, and that's perfectly fine. You have a national martyr, and he's relieved of the great threat to his kingdom and his kingship. Or, David is smeared publicly, and he loses nothing without an ounce of concern or care for his daughter or her reproach or anything like that. You go on, and you read down, and get outside of the verses a little bit and you read in verse 20 that Michael loved David his other daughter one of his younger girls she loved David and I just want to say it makes good sense why wouldn't she love David David was like a rock star he was a celebrity in the midst of the people of Israel he was mighty world champion of the people of Israel none could be greater of course she loved David all the little girls loved David but she's a princess, and her heart is given to this man. Presumably, she's been around David, at least in her father's court. But now, she lets it be known to her father, Hey, Dad, I like him. I'd like him to be mine. Can you give me the prize stallion of the stables of Israel? And what does Saul do? Is he thrilled that his daughter wants to marry for love and not politics? No, he schemes and he plots once again. And in verse 21, we read yet again, Let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. The game is on again. 
Apparently it didn't work. Apparently David wasn't completely shamed and publicly disgraced. So the plot, at least in Saul's feeble, jealous, crazed mind, is raring and raging against the Lord and against his anointed once again. So where am I going with this? What's the point of the sermon in this place where we are within it? Well, it's this. God's plans are greater than man's plots. Saul wanted David dead, but it could not work. God's hand of providence then distracted Saul. Hey, look over here, look over here. More gold here, more gold here. Don't send him into battle. The first plot failed and the people did not turn against him. The second plot ultimately again failed. You've got this pretty young princess that he thinks, he's pretty sure, at least David hasn't professed his his love for her, but his response to the proposal is such that you can imagine he's, you know, smitten with her. He's willing to go kill not just 100 but 200 men and do even more of a deed for the sake of having her. It's a significant thing. But God's plans are greater for David, aren't they? They are. God defends him. God defends him from shame. God defends him from harm. Why? Well, because God would have this shepherd boy to be king. God wants a righteous king in Israel, a man that loves him, a a man that offers his heart to the Lord. Moreover, God not only wants Israel to have a righteous king, but God wants... Israel to have a king that would establish the line of the family of his eternal son taken on flesh. The plans and the plots of Saul are nothing in the face of the plans of the God of heaven. David doesn't flinch because he trusts God. God doesn't get disturbed for a second. Oh, what am I going to do if Saul only succeeds? It doesn't work that way. And why do I bring this up? Why do I bring it to you? You're not in a situation where a princess is interested in any of the men in the building, not even remotely. No princess knows that any of us men exist. No prince knows that any of the women in the building exist also. I mean, maybe you could come and tell me, but pastor, you just don't know. I come from a long line of Cherokee Indian royalty I'm a princess in the flesh. I don't know, but I can generally say it's hard to relate specifically to the ancient context. None of you will likely ever be proposed to by a potential spouse's father and then turned against for your own death. So how does this meet you? You and I live in a world, and as Christians, we inevitably face people that do not like the gospel that do not like Jesus, and ultimately that do not like you. Because you belong to Christ, you're called a Christian, you are a person of the gospel and redeemed by his grace. And I want to tell you very clearly that if you don't know already, the world is plotting against you and against me. Psalm 2 declares it from ancient times on to today that there are those who raise a hand against the Lord and against his anointed. And they hate you and I because we belong to him. This is reality. You may experience it in casual friendships where a friend may turn against you, where they may want to destroy you for your religious and spiritual beliefs. 
slandering you. Your children may experience it in school where their names are plastered and they are slandered on social media or in other forms and formats and they're bullied and we suffer at the hands of others. You may experience this professionally where, yes, you're in line for uh, the promotion, but you're passed over conveniently because, well, you're just not tolerant enough. You are, Christian, engaged in a world that hates your Lord, and because they hate him, they will take out all their hatred against him in your flesh. And you need to hear this. God's plans for you are bigger than their plots. They cannot touch you except that the Lord approves of it for your good and his glory. Not a hair on your head can be moved apart from his will. Moreover, you should also be reminded that his king will come back and will avenge you to the very utmost. There will be no injustice done against the church, against the people of God, the bride of Christ, that those who have perpetrated it will not answer for by the hand of the Lord on the day of judgment and the day of his glory. You need to hear that. God is bigger than people that hate you. Verses 22 through 24, godly humility magnifies God's glory. If you look at verse 18, this isn't in the verse range, but nonetheless, this is his first response to Saul's proposition or his proposal. David says to Saul, who wants to have him as son-in-law so that he can kill him, David's response is, Who am I? Who am I? Who are my relatives? My father's clan in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king. I'm a poor boy from poor upbringing with nothing to offer to you. I don't look good for you, Saul. I don't have nice clothes. Everything that I'm wearing is just borrowed from Jonathan. I don't have a nice education. I don't drive a nice car. My parents don't have a nice house. Who am I really, Saul, that I should be a prince of Israel? And it's wild humility that this comes from David. And in the context and time that David says it, even more so. That little boy who's a shepherd keeping the sheep, who's mighty, could have had all the pride in the world. I've taken out my lions and my bears. Made the champion of Israel. I've taken out the Philistine monster. Made the captain of the guard of the king. I've commanded my thousand to dominate tens of thousands. But that's not what David says. Look at verse 23, and you see the second response to the proposal that he marry Michael, the second daughter, presumably a good-looking one. Um, And you go and you read in verse 23, uh, David's response after Saul's servants have already told him that the king loves you and all the servants also love you. You're just the best thing ever. Um, David's response to them is, does it seem to you a little thing To become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation. 
don't you think this is a little weird? <laughs> uh, really, who am I? In David's mind, he doesn't occupy the rank of a senior officer. He has no estate. It's humility that blinds the eyes of David from the opportunity to be impressed with what God has used him to do. Humility, godly humility. He doesn't see himself the anointed shepherd boy, the successor to Saul, the second king of Israel, the one whom Samuel, the prophet of God, placed his hands upon and passed over all of his brothers. David doesn't see it. David doesn't see himself the little boy who only with a stone took on the giant and wielded his sword to lop off his head and deliver a trembling king and an entire host, the army of Israel, from the army of the Philistines. He doesn't even see it. He doesn't look down and say, look at these wonderful robes I've been given. I'm basically a prince. He doesn't say, you know, Saul, I've already been taking out all of your enemies. You owe me your daughter. Because the reality is, historically, David is a big deal. He's a superstar, both spiritually and actually. He's a man of might and also a man of wisdom and talent. We know this. He's, you know, I said he's like a rock star. That wasn't very figurative. He's a psalm writer. And I promise you, you know no one who has written more endearing hits that have lasted enduring throughout centuries and across cultures. He's way more popular than the most popular artist you could imagine. He is a huge deal. He's God's chosen Man, he could stand before the people of Israel and say, quite simply, he should be dethroned. I'm the one. I'll take his daughter if I want her. But it's his humility. And how does he get there? It is because consistently, everything that David has done, he is always testifying that if he will do it, it is God who will make it be. If anything needs done, if anything can be done, it's not because of David's own sense of right, but God's own right to glory. That's what he's saying. David's nothing in his own mind but just a simple servant. He's a private in an army with a halfway functioning gun taking orders from someone much, much, much more impressive. And it's not fake humility or strategic humility, but actual humility. And what he is saying constantly is, don't look at me, look at God. He deserves the glory. It's not the armies of Israel who have been offended, but the God of Israel. It's him, it's him, not me. Godly humility magnifies God's glory. One of the worst things a preacher can hear is, oh, pastor, you preached a great sermon. One of the worst things that the Christian can hear is, wow, you did a great job. I wish I could be as holy as you 
I wish my life was like your life. You've got it all under control. And the healthiest thing that a pastor can say in the face of what a great sermon that was is to simply say, I just hope God was glorified. And the Christian to just say, God has been so gracious to me. I've done nothing. He's done everything. I'm just a recipient, a wretched recipient of heavenly gifts. He's given me everything. It's all Him. I'm nothing. And you insist upon it, not to the hatred of ourselves or the, the turning in of a, of a sense of um, love for self, but rather just simply a love for God. How does a Christian not get down on themselves with the full knowledge of their sin? It's to be so distracted with the praise and the glory of God that he can't even consider himself long enough to be so selfish to be depressed about who he is not or she is not. Godly humility magnifies God's glory. And David is a shining example of this. Okay, Saul. I hear that you want me to be a prince. I don't really trust you and have no reason to trust you. And I can step aside and I can look at my God and say, whatever my God ordains is right. And so far, he's blessed everything that I've ever done. Verses 25 through 30, we see that godly trust is greater than human suspicion. You come uh, to verse 25, you hear what I think is a terrifying, uh, incredibly strange and mildly disgusting bride price. Uh, Probably none of you had to pay a bride price. Uh, Maybe you did, I don't know that for sure, but I'll say I didn't have a bride price. Uh, My father-in-law looked at me and said, son, I just want you to know one thing. As soon as you marry her, you're paying the rest of her undergraduate tuition. Yes, sir. I'll take care of her. And so it was. We married. Uh, Woman left mom and dad. Man left mom and dad. And the rest is history. But in the ancient world, a bride price is normal. A dowry, sometimes it's called. And again, I mentioned earlier some of the things that generally occupy a dowry. It might be bolts of silk cloth. It might be uh, gallons or liters of fine wine. It might be gold. It might be silver. It might be incense. It might be wood. It might be cows. It might be goats. It might be sheep. It might be a million different other things. It could be, I don't know, bales of wool. In the modern world, it might be a Mercedes Benz. I don't know. It could be a lot of different things. But this one surpasses all of those suggestions. Whenever David says, I'm a poor man, I have no reputation, nothing to speak of, Saul's response, well, the king desires no bride price except for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. I'm not going to spell that out for the crowd. Let's just say this, no man is going to willingly give that up. It's going to entail killing a hundred men. That's pretty clear from the passage of Scripture. David takes his great men with him and they kill not just a hundred but two hundred and it's an extraordinary feat. Uh, But you have to wonder, you know, is Saul very sober? Probably not uh, because I would just generally say if a man were to, you want to marry my daughter, this is what you're going to have to do, kill a hundred men and do that. Uh, I'd probably say, you know, second thought, I don't don't know I need her. it's a bit more terrifying. Uh, the whole uh, engagement, it's, well, it's kind of bizarre. 
But how does David respond to this bizarre thing? This, this task, which in the mind of Saul is fully intended to see David fight at least 100 hand-to-hand, man-on-man battles to the death with the assumption that he may, he may make it through one Goliath, five Philistines. By the time he gets to 20, assuming that logic works out, he's probably going to die. There's no way David's that great. 30 guys? There's no way. No way. No way. The most deadly men on earth can't boast of anything remotely like that. 50? Not a chance. 100? We won't have to think about David. There's no way he's even getting to 30. David is surely marching to his death. Saul has no concern for Michael. Saul has no concern for the kingdom. Losing his, well, most lethal weapon. I have no concern. He just wants to be rid of of David, but David's response, verse 26, when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. What? What was David's response? Deal. A <laughs> hundred men, no problem. <laughs> Not even a thought. There's no debate. Can we get it down to 75? I think she's only a, a 54 skin kind of girl. I don't know. There's none of this. There's not. David just, he's pleased to do it. Not a problem. It seems like a low value deal. Let's just go for it. And I, I love how verse 26 continues on because we're told that before the time it expired, Saul was so strange about this. He says, you've got 30 days or 40 days or 50 days. I don't know. But David says, we're going to make the deadline ahead of time. And I'm going to take it down to the last minute. Before the time it expired, David arose and went along with his men and he did what he, well, he flexed his muscles a bit and killed 200 men in the Philistines and brought the spoils to Saul and gave them to him. What? It's one of the bizarre texts of Scripture. One of the bizarre texts that the Bible has to offer up to us. And we have to just stop and we have to we have to just marvel how in the world David can know that his father-in-law hates him and wants him dead. He's tried to kill him twice. He's sending him on an impossible mission that will ultimately, according to the wisdom of men, end in horrible disaster, pain, and death. How can he walk into this? Is David just completely foolish? No. David's not a fool. This is a painfully transparent plot. But his trust in God is greater than his human suspicion. One of the things you're going to see of David is he kind of replays this in a sense. Later in his life, whenever he gets into the Bathsheba affair, he does this with her husband, sends him out to his death. He's a whole lot better at it. It doesn't, you know, try to pull anything bizarre like Saul has done. But how can David walk into this? Is it he just doesn't want to look cowardly to decline and endure the public shame? No. He trusts his God. 
He trusted his God as much as whenever the Philistine was stomping around the ground of battle, mocking the God of Israel, mocking the Israelites. He trusted his God as much as whenever he had just a shepherd's rod and staff and took on the lions and the bears. And he trusted his God. You know, if this is what you want me to do, Lord. I need a, a queen if I'm set to be king. It makes the most sense to be a prince of King Saul that the household of Israel might continue in an unbroken succession. Oh, Lord, if this is what you're putting at my foot in all of your sovereignty, the thing that I have to walk through, this valley of the shadow of death, Lord, I can do anything with you. I trust you. I trust you. The field of battle with this sort of thing to be done is just as safe as as if I'm beside streams of still water and laying in green pastures. Yeah, I know that Saul's crazy, Lord. Yes, I know that he's driven mad by jealousy. Yes, I know, Lord, he wants my head and he wants me dead. And he hates me, that he can't touch me, Lord. I know all these things. And I trust you enough to do whatever you want me to do. I'll obey you. In fact, I'm going to obey you big. I'm going to make an impression. I want your daughter so much, I'll pay twice. There's a huge effect to this sort of trust in God. Yes, it glorifies God. But also it sets him up to be a leader in the midst of God's people. We've already read that Saul's afraid of David, uh, that he's seen that the hand of God is upon him. Uh, It really seems foolish to even try this kind of thing if you're Saul. But again, he's a fool. He's driven mad by jealousy. Verses 28 and 29, read along with me. But whenever Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. You better believe that Saul was afraid of him. Not just that the hand of the Lord was upon him, but the hand of the Lord was upon him in terrifying military fashion. Not just a hundred Philistines, two hundred Philistines. And let me just say, after the first one, two, three, or four, maybe even ten of those Philistines, and not only were getting killed, but also other things done, the news had to have gotten around. This is a significant thing. This great act not only instilled fear in the heart of the enemies of the people of Israel, but instilled fear in the heart of Saul, the king of Israel, who has fashioned himself as an enemy to the Lord and to the Lord's anointed. David trusts his God. And so where does this meet you? How do you deal with this? You're not going to be faced with this kind of thing. I trust. I pray. You're never going to be faced with this. But you're going to be faced with crazy people who you cannot manage their craziness. You probably already are. You may know several of them. My life of ministry, I've encountered so many. Uh, People that want an ounce of flesh from me uh, for various reasons. They're angry at a former pastor. They're angry at me because of something I did. And I actually really deserve the ounce of flesh to be taken out. Um, uh, They're angry at the world. They're angry at God. They're angry at Jesus. They're angry at a million different things. And so they take it out against a minister. This is common for elders, for deacons, for officers and people in the church. It's really uh, not that, that strange. 
But people can be driven to absolute crazy things. And yet, in the course of the calling of God, you still have to act and live as a Christian person under God's will. How do you do that? How does a minister love the crazy person that really just hates his guts? How does he stand and preach? How does the elder care for the person that despises the elders in the session, thinks they're a bunch of idiots and fools? How does the deacon do likewise? How does the church member love his neighbor who spit in his face? To trust God more than he gives him or herself into unchecked suspicion. It is more important to trust God, to love God, and to be willing to be obedient to him and to just do what he says, to serve, to evangelize, to love, to constantly pursue even the difficult and hard person for the sake of God. Because not not that you trust the person, but because you trust God and you love him. That's where this passage meets you. That's where it meets me. And I think that is where we can learn so much from the godly example of King David. A godly example that was known by the Lord Jesus Christ, who knew the craziness of the rulers of Israel and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Romans, and the craziness of the crowds who had experienced their hands groping and grabbing for him and just slipped through the crowd and got away from them and yet still in trust with his holy and heavenly father walked into the city to shouts of Hosanna. Willfully handing his wrist over to chains in the garden of Gethsemane after praying and walked after the guards and kept silent with no defense in the face of Herod and in the face also of his Roman judge, hated and derided by the crowds, the king of glory, great David's greater son, nailed to a cross that he caused to grow, whose existence he still held in the palm of his hand. He trusted God more than he was willing to give himself over to suspicion. How much can we learn from this, Christians? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we love your word. It is a mine filled with gold and jewels. Oh, Father, we pray that you would continually display to us your goodness and love in every verse and every word of Scripture. Lord, help us to be people who would delight in you in every season, even if the world should hate us, deride us, or martyr us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.